Scripture reading for the morning from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, the series of questions that Paul encourages us to wrestle with in order to understand the deep implications of the gospel for us. Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord, uh, you've given us uh, this, your word. Um, You've preserved it for us so that we can read it together and now... Uh, continue to show your faithfulness. Grant your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts to receive this living word that you would speak into our hearts. Come now in the, in the mystery, even in the foolishness of preaching, and set Jesus before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We... Um, we did have a great time uh, away. We um, we spent a few days uh, camping, a couple of days uh, camping in the woods of uh, Western North Carolina, the mountains of Western North Carolina, which may seem like a strange thing for a couple of 60-plus-year-olds to be doing. Um, and we would have camped a little bit longer had it not been for a bear and rain. But between the bear and the rain, we decided that it was time to move on. So we Spent the next few days uh, in southwestern Virginia, had a delightful time, no bears, no rain, no bad weather, covering that was solid, great time. And then the next week we spent actually over on the Chesapeake, and it was really a study week, and and I spent that week uh, reading and rereading and praying through and reading commentaries and thinking through, uh, just wrestling through Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is where we're going to be in the next a couple of weeks, this next really significant portion of uh, this letter to the Romans. And then the last week we spent uh, with two of our daughters. We were in Memphis uh, last weekend, had a really wonderful weekend with our middle daughter and her husband. And then the first part of this week we were in Chattanooga with our youngest daughter and uh, had a couple of really delightful days uh, with her. And, and, And much of that time, which sort of moves us into What we want to think about this morning, much of that time that we were with our youngest daughter, um, not not the whole of it, but but a good chunk of it, uh, we we were trying to encourage her. 
and, and here's why she needed encouragement. She's in a new job. And uh, she's been in this new job for a little over two months, three months, something like that. And, and the first couple of months just went famously. I mean, she just had a great first couple of months. She's in sales, and the first couple of months went really well. And, and the last couple of weeks, not so much. And she's been laid off from a couple of jobs because of downturn in the economy. And, and so when you're not producing as a salesperson in a new job, you, you get nervous. And she was nervous, deeply nervous, concerned. And so, you know, we, it's funny how you never stop being a parent, right? We really did spend some time trying to encourage her. Uh, and, and that, you know, when you're, when you're doing that with a child, it's just sort of an inevitable thing that you kind of, you, you kind of spin back around to yourself and you start asking, at least I did and I think Barb did, you know, start asking these, these questions like, like, where is it that I find? This is what we wanted to say to Annie, our youngest daughter. Where is it that I find a deep and abiding sense of assurance in the midst of life's uncertainties? Where, where do I go uh, for, for an anchor that holds me secure and, and a foundation that, that stabilizes me in the midst of life's uncertainties. I have a pastor friend, I think I've quoted this, quoted him before, I have a pastor friend who says, basically says this, if it won't matter in a hundred years, it doesn't matter now. And, and the, you know, to, to, to kind of take that little insight and put it in the form of a question, it comes at us in this way. What will matter to you in a hundred years? That's what we wanted to say to Annie. What will matter to you in a hundred years? What will matter to you in a thousand years? What will matter to you in 10,000 years? When having sung praises to God for His amazing grace, for 10,000 years, you've no less days to sing God's praise than when you first begun. See, what's going to matter to you in 10,000 years? That's, honestly, that's the stuff that the apostle is seeking to press home to the listeners, those who are hearing this letter read in the city of Rome. In the midst of life's uncertainties, the struggles, the heartaches, the disappointments, where do you go to find an anchor? Where do you go to find stability? What is it that defines you? And Paul would say unhesitatingly, it is the gospel that defines the Christian. The gospel, not, not just the word, but, but all that is packed into the word. It is the gospel that defines who I am. It is the gospel that gives me an anchor in the midst of the storms. It is the gospel that provides the foundation. It is the gospel that will matter to you most in a hundred years, in a thousand years, in ten thousand years, in a hundred thousand years. The realities of the gospel. 
And Paul, as a pastor, is seeking to press this home through a series of questions. And the first of the questions is this, as he comes to the, kind of to the end of this first major part of this letter, the first question is this, what therefore shall we say to these things? Which is his way of saying, now I want you to stop. I don't want you to pass over this. I want you to take a minute. In fact, take several minutes. In fact, take days and weeks. In fact, there's a sense in which Paul would say, don't ever stop asking yourselves this question. What is the significance of the things that I've been hearing? What's the significance of this? That's the first question. There are six Questions in this passage, seven, if you count the last part of verse 35 uh, as, a, as another question. But six main questions, and that's the first of them. What shall we say to these things? Stop, think, reflect upon. And then the second question that he asks, asks there in verse 31, the end of verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I suggested to you several weeks ago that what Paul is addressing in that question is this question. Will the power of God fail? Remember we had a power outage when I was preaching on that? There's no power outages in the kingdom of God. Once God resolves to do something, once God purposes to do something... He has power sufficient to see to it that it is executed. There is no shortage of power. There is no restriction, no limitation in God. That's the second question. And it's designed to answer the question, will will God's power be adequate or inadequate? And Paul says, are you kidding? I mean, the effect of it is, are you kidding? This is the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth. The God who sustains all things by the word of his power. His power is sufficient to accomplish what he sets out to do. And what's the proof? What's the evidence that Paul gives that God's power is sufficient to accomplish what he sets out to do? It's the next question. He's given us his son. Won't he in his son just as freely give us everything else? He's given the greater Would he not give the lesser? What's the evidence that the power of God is sufficient to ensure the outcome that God purposes for you? It is the gift of his son. And then he comes now to this next question. The questions in verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, who was raised, and who now, having been raised, is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And let me suggest to you that those questions address this question, will the purpose of God fail? Is the power of God sufficient? Jesus is the evidence that God will not withhold anything to ensure the outcome of what he purposes, well, will his purpose fail? Will his power fail? Will his purpose fail? And Paul would say to us, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And he gives us three things that reassure us 
that his purpose is not going to fail. Three strong reasons for us as Christians this morning to be assured that his purpose is not going to fail. Number one, he's acted in eternity past. He's acted in eternity past. Number two, he has acted in time past. Number three, he is acting in time presently. He has acted in eternity past. He has acted in time past. And he is acting in time in the present right now. So God has acted first in eternity past. Look at what he says, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now I want you to be, to be particularly attentive and pay particular attention to what Paul's doing here. I want you to see what he's doing. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That is, who will bring an accusation against God's elect. It's a courtroom scene. It's a legal setting. Who will bring an accusation against God's elect? I want you to see what he does, and I want you to see what he doesn't do. Notice this. He doesn't say the charges, the accusations, are untrue or irrelevant. This is really important. It's really important pastorally. It's really important for your assurance. He doesn't say that the accusations or the charges are untrue or irrelevant. He doesn't say that. Nowhere in the gospel will you find the notion that the charges that can be brought against me are untrue or unjust, or in any way illegitimate. Jesus never, Paul never, the gospel never treats these things as irrelevant or illegitimate. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The charges are real, folks. Now here's a question, if we can just hit the pause button. And do a little pastoral theology and a little pastoral application here, which is for me as much as it is for you, more so in some respects. When someone comes to you with something, something legitimate, when someone comes to you and you're confronted by the reality of your own sin, what do you do with that? When someone comes to you with something legitimate and you're confronted with the reality of your own sin, what do you do with that? What do you say? Do you say, well, yes, but there's all this other stuff over here. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. But there's all this other stuff over here i've been this i've done that i've accomplished this i'm this is true of me this is true what do i do when i'm confronted by a legitimate accusation made against me whether it's from someone 
or from some bigger someone, God the Holy Spirit, or even the great enemy of your soul, the devil of hell himself. What do you do with that? Do you say, well, yes, that's true, but there's all of this stuff over here about me that's true also. There's a great line from a Jackson Brown song that I can't get out of my mind when I think about this. And you may not even know the song and you may not uh, care, but it's a line that just plant got planted in my head and I can't expunge it. We forget about the losses and we exaggerate the wins. We forget about the losses and we exaggerate the wins. What do I do? do? Do I say, well, yeah, but there's all of this stuff about me. I'm not as bad as all that. Or do I say, do I respond in the way that Paul Koistra responded once? I heard him say this in a sermon. Paul Koistra, former president of our denominational seminary, currently the director of our world mission agency said, when people accuse me of something, I say a quiet prayer of thanks that they don't know the whole truth. How do I respond? See, Paul doesn't minimize the reality of the charges, the allegations that can be brought against me, the accusations that can be brought against me. Here is where the difference is. The difference is not in my trying to repudiate or refuse or in some way paste over or make allowance for with a whole lot of stuff on the other side of the ledger. Here's the difference. The difference is not with respect to the charges. The difference is with respect to my standing before God. Paul doesn't say dismiss the charges, they don't matter. That's not the focus of his attention here. The focus of his attention is on my standing before God as one who for reasons I will never understand has been pleased to choose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. Who will bring a charge against God's elect. Who are the elect? Well, the elect are those whom Paul has been referring to in these previous verses. The elect are those whom he has foreknown, which is to say, if you remember from a few weeks ago, those whom he has foreloved. Can you fathom this? That God, this is Ephesians 1.4, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Can you fathom that before the foundations of the world, God, knowing all things, God looks across the whole of humankind in connection with Adam, having rebelled against him, having cast off his rightful rule and reign, having repudiated his lordship, having asserted themselves and exalted themselves to be God in his place. God before the foundation of the world is pleased in love and affection to set that affection upon me. 
those whom he foreknew, which I trust you remember, we understand to mean rightly those whom he foreloved. And those whom he foreloved, having loved them, having chosen them, he then predestined them, he ordained in advance that they should be conformed to the image of his Son, that they should be like Jesus. Barb and I were listening to some music this morning before we came to worship. We, we Barb does, and I do too. I'm terribly distracted, but I try to get into this. Try to listen to some good choral music to encourage our hearts and kind of get us directed and focused. Uh, and we were listening to a hymn, a, 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 actually, I think, an Advent hymn. Um, and, it, and, and it was about little children. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. That's predestination, friends. That is Jesus before the foundation of the world. That is the Father before the foundation of the world, having loved us before the foundation of the world, having chosen us before the foundation of the world, having set his affection upon us, having determined to save us. The final outcome of all of that is that we might be fit for heaven, that we might dwell with Jesus, being like Jesus, being glorified with Jesus, reflecting the glory of his Father across the totality of our lives in the new heaven and the new earth, not in some disembodied sort of experience floating on clouds playing harps, but with real bodies walking on sand, eating real food of some kind, Singing real songs with real vocal cords that don't crack. That's the final outcome of it. Fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Who are the elect? They are these. Who will bring a charge? And, and this, is the, this is the implication of it. Who will bring a charge against those whom God, having chosen, having loved, having determined an outcome for, who will bring a charge against those between whose sin and final judgment God takes his stand? See, it's not that the charges aren't real and legitimate. It is that God, in love and mercy, has taken it upon himself to stand between those charges and the execution of judgment against them. Now, here's a predictable illustration. If you've seen the film, any one of the films, Les Miserables, or if you've seen the stage production, or if you've read Victor Hugo's 1,400-page novel, you know that one of the great scenes in that play, in that stage production, in that novel, is the scene in which Jean Valjean, having gotten out of prison, having been paroled from prison, spends the night with a priest and steals silver from the priest. And the gendarme captures him, suspecting that he's up to no good, finding that he is up to no good, at least in the mind of the gendarme, and brings him back to the priest. 
And what does the priest do? What does the priest do? He stands between Jean Valjean and the criminal charges legitimately brought against him. That is what God does. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Look, remember when we talked about the power of God? We talked about the fact that God's power is so limitless, so great, so glorious, that when God resolves to bind Satan, this is Revelation 20, he sends an angel to do it. Would you go take care of my light work? Who will bring a charge against God's elect when God has taken it upon himself to stand between those who are being charged and the execution of the judgment that would rightly come against them for those crimes? That's what the priest does in Les Miserables. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because you have to ask the question, okay, okay. God, God then, having chosen this people, having loved this people, having determined what the final outcome of this choice will be, that they be conformed to the image of Christ, isn't there a sense in which we still have the problem of these charges sort of out there? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Look at what Paul says next. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the second thing, isn't it? God having acted in the past, God having taken it upon himself to stand between the legitimate charges and the execution of the judgments against us for that wrongdoing, God having made that act in eternity past, then acts in the present history of humankind. And he acts in the person of his son. Have you ever noticed this before? This distinction that is here in the text between the charges brought against the elect and the next question, who is there to condemn? Why didn't Paul go directly in answer to that other question? Who is there to bring a charge against God's elect? Why didn't he go directly to the idea of justification? Why did he raise this issue of condemnation? For this simple reason, folks. When those charges come against me, legitimate charges, points at which it's very clear, whether raised by another person, by the Holy Spirit, or even by the devil of hell, the enemy of my soul, those charges are not to be dismissed. They are to be dealt with. And Paul raises this question of condemnation. Let me read it for you. The flow of the thing. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. And who is currently interceding for us. Why is it? 
that I don't face condemnation when the charges are brought against me. Because Christ Jesus has been condemned in my place. This takes us back to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following. And that incredibly important passage in this whole letter, it's only six verses. It is the incredibly important passage in which Paul portrays for us the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ, the pure and innocent and righteous one, comes into the world and becomes the propitiatory sacrifice for those who trust in him. And in that sacrifice, condemnation for wrongdoing is visited upon Jesus. Who is there to condemn? Are the charges legitimate? Absolutely. Those and more. But you see, the answer to the problem of a conscience, of the devil, of the Holy Spirit, of a person coming to me with accusations against me, the answer to that issue is not to try to create some sort of column on the other side of the ledger that gets me off the hook for these things. The answer to the problem for these things is Jesus, the substitute, who suffers condemnation in my place so that I pass through judgment. And now, Paul says, I'm justified. It is God who justifies. It is God who elects. It is God who foreknows. It is God who predestines. And it is God who justifies. And here's the beauty and wonder and glory of the gospel. When God justifies, he does not dismiss the charges. He does not dismiss the charges. He deals with the charges. And he deals with the charges in the gift of his son who takes my sin as my substitute, bears that sin to the cross, and suffers condemnation in my place. Romans A1. Best verse in the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God has acted in eternity past. He's acted in the past in time, in the person of his son. And he has made a basis upon which, a foundation upon which, a rationale for which God may declare those who are sinners to be just in his sight. And what is justification? It's these two things. Wrap your brains around this one and you will live a life of liberty and freedom for the rest of your days. Justification is simply this. God, on the basis of this finished work of Jesus, declaring you innocent and positively righteous and accepted in his sight. What will matter in a hundred years? What will matter in a thousand years? What will matter in ten thousand years? Look, the circumstances of your life will be a pale, pale recollection 
The accusations that people bring against you, the devil, anybody, your own conscience, whatever, they will be a pale, pale reflection. What will matter to you the most, what your eyes will see, what your hearts will believe, what the whole of your bodies will enjoy, provided the Lord comes back within the next hundred years. Thousand years, ten thousand years. What you will know is that Jesus as the confession says, has fully satisfied for all your sin. And there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. None. Accusations are there, but they've been dealt with at the cross. And then here's the third thing, because it isn't over yet. I'm just about finished, but the gospel isn't finished. Here's the third thing. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God has taken it upon himself to stand between me and the legitimate accusations that can be brought against me. The question of illegitimate accusations is another sermon. That's another sermon. The real problem is the legitimate application of this. The application of this notion that there are legitimate issues that I have and accusations that can be brought against me. And God has taken it upon himself to stand between me and those accusations and the execution of judgment against them. And he's done that in Jesus Christ at the cross so that there is a basis upon which God may declare me innocent and positively righteous. But he isn't done. He isn't done. He's not finished with what's going on in the past. He continues to work, and he works in the present. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is there to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who now is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. When the gendarme brought Jean Valjean back to the priest, he brought him back to the right person. If he had taken him to Javert, he'd have been toast. My friends, don't ever go back to the law and make any attempt to justify yourself before God in terms of your obedience to the law. You will find that the law is a prison. You will be shackled by it. You will find yourself like Javert, standing right on that wall, falling backwards to his own destruction. When the gendarme brought Jean Valjean to the priest... He brought him to the right person. Remember, if you've seen the movie in which Liam Neeson plays the role of Jean Valjean, you'll remember the priest saying this to him. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You no longer belong to evil. Jean Valjean my brother, 
With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have rescued you from fear. And now I am giving you back to God. When I sin, my friends, when I sin, I go back to the priest. I don't go to the law. Trying to justify myself in terms of the law. That is a prison. That is a death sentence. When I sin, and I'm not speaking specifically, I'm speaking for all of us. When I sin, I come back to the priest, the great high priest, in whom I have been chosen in eternity past, by whom I have been redeemed through his death on the cross in time, and who now in the present is what he says he is, a great high priest making intercession for me. And when I come back to him, he says to me, don't forget, don't ever forget, I have rescued you from evil. You are mine. You belong to me. And not with silver or gold have I purchased you, but with my own precious blood. And I have given you back to God. Michael, my brother, I have rescued you from fear. Go and be free. Where's the anchor for your soul? What will matter to you in a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand years? What do you do when the accusations come? Go to your brother who has rescued you, delivered you from fear, and hear him speak peace and go and be free. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a staggering, glorious gospel this is. Thank you that those moments of conviction are actually for us moments of great freedom, great liberty. Give us grace that we might run to your son and not away from him. Yet again, to praise him. And marvel at a grace that would rescue sinners like us. Thank you that you've chosen us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you have died for us in time. And thank you that you are present for us right now in this moment of our lives to speak peace to our souls. We pray in your name. Amen.